there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. Hey, Dr. Ashabitar, I, I got a challenge for you only because of Super Don's challenge to me because I was like last hour super serious guy. And he says, mm-hmm. you know, maybe Dr. Batar will lighten us up. And then we both looked at each other and said, nah, probably not. But <laughs> maybe, maybe. Now, here, I'm well, going to throw out a... Unless, unless you guys are talking about, like, the putting my picture of me up there and laughing at it. Is that what you meant, lighten me up? or No, no, no. I'm sure you weren't I, talking about my sense of humor. No, well, no, couldn't have been. You have a good sense of humor. You like to laugh, and people well, people should know I that like about you, Robert. I I think <laughs> that I do too, but I, I'm afraid that probably you and I are the only two that think that because my wife tells me all the time. She looks at me and she says, "You think you're funny, don't you?" <laughs> <laughs> and that's what makes it funny. But you know, we can be super serious. I I agree. And Super Don called me out on it last hour because you know that. Listen, there were a lot of intense stories. And uh, one, of, uh, one of the stories he thought would light me up, and it didn't work, was uh, a story of, of uh, Skittles. You know those little candies, artificially colored, oh, yeah. flavored, sweetened Skittles? And there was a yeah. big truck that spilled Skittles all over the place in Wisconsin. And, and so that's like an interesting story. But the interesting twist on the story was that those Skittles were being taken not to the store to be sold to kids, but being taken to cattle feed operations to be melted down and added to cattle field and CAFO factory farms for cattle to eat. Are you serious? Yes. Yes. So the M&M Mars company, that's a big chocolate milk. They put, they feed them like chocolates and then make a chocolate milk out of it. Is that how they do that? I don't think sweetened colored milk. And no, I don't think it comes out that way, but (laughs) you know, we were saying that maybe the Skittles end up in the burgers, but it's like, it's bad enough to feed animals stuff that will kill them. Of course, then they put them on antibiotics to keep them alive or pump them up for sale, uh, you know, make them fatter. But then, you know, the kids that are out there still eating fast food burgers or, you know, factory farmed animals, you know, they don't realize it's not just, quote, unquote, GMO. But, you know, it's GMO Skittles. This is the kind of stuff they're feeding. Let me tell you something. The the one thing that I have to say, Mm -hmm. um, there are certain things like Skittles, for example, that I haven't had Skittles in probably 10 years. But I do remember how tasty they were. And you start thinking that if a company could take that effort that they put into making such a great-tasting substance and just put a little bit more into, like, making it healthy, how much more would they be able to do in business? Because they do taste pretty good. I don't know. I think your taste buds are kind of warped. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> it's the, the, fruity, the fruity part of it. I like the fruit taste, you know, like Jolly Ranchers. I remember that I used to have an – when I used to drink – a six-pack uh-huh. of Sprite during each ER shift, I yes. also ate Jolly Ranchers. Now, Jolly cool. Ranchers, they're made from, like, an ester, and it's, um, you know, of course, it's got sugar and all that stuff in it, but it really tastes good. Super Don, help me out. I mean, you've had a Jolly Rancher, right? Oh, of course. The watermelon. Where, are, watermelon and the apple. The watermelon Jolly. and the, the apple. That's right. I, I love the apple, the tart. You don't like the I, apple? You do I like d- the apple. I liked them both. I liked the apple and the watermelon. And listen, to, to, yeah, to be fair, too. 
and honest. Again, I, I've I've acknowledged my history in growing up in, the, in in America and eating all of this garbage. I have, so I know the flavor of a Jolly Rancher. I remember it from my childhood. But okay. I, to, to me, it's it tastes so darn artificial. I, what I remember it tasting like is different than what it would taste like to me today. However, you are well, right. Here's the thing, uh-huh. but Robert. Here's the thing. You take a green Granny Smith organic apple. It's crunchy. You cut it up and you taste it, and I and I love that taste. And a Jolly Rancher, I remember it was a very similar taste. My point was that if they took the same effort that they do to put into the taste of these items and made it nutritional based because there's, there's no way under this God's hmm. green earth that we if we can go to the moon and we can have internet where I can send a message and I'll be around the world and that you you know we can talk across airwaves mm-hmm. just like we're next sitting next to each other and we may be thousands of miles apart in that type of technology you're telling me that they can't take a taste like they've created with the Jolly Rancher Skittle and make a healthy nutritional component out of it and I would say they definitely can in fact one of our multivitamins for children that we've been working on, we were going to make it into like a gummy bear. You know the gummies that they have? Yes, But a multivitamin right. with, with, uh, with um, all the minerals and vitamins that children need. And we actually found a company that was already making them, and they're adjusting the formula right now. But I'm telling you, my son said, Dad, are you sure this is a vitamin? It tastes like candy, and it's good. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. the same thing, because I would go by and grab the bottles and, you know, take a couple myself. And, and I, it's, all, it's all healthy. I got it. Yeah, I got a question what? about you drinking Sprite in the ER. There's no caffeine in Sprite. What's the point? Um, I think it's just like for anything else. You get a taste for a certain drink. Um, you know, I didn't, at that time, I didn't, I wasn't involved enough, so I thought I was doing good by drinking a, a white clear, uh, as opposed <laughs> okay. to a, you know, Coca-Cola type thing. But right, um, right. very, very interestingly, what I drink mostly besides water now is just club soda, and that's what I've drank for the last 10, 15 years. You know, mm-hmm. I may squeeze a lime in there, but it was just club soda, just water with carbonation in it. And um, so the point that I was making, though, is that if they just put a little bit of effort, they could create some really, really tasty things. I've had things sometimes at a restaurant that I've ordered from a menu that's organic, range-fed, this, that, the other, and you eat it, and you think to yourself, this is phenomenal. Of course, you know, they charge a lot more for it, too, but it's really, really clean and healthy. Yes. And I started thinking that if a company just put a little bit of effort that way, you could make some really tasty little snacks or, or you know, desserts or, or whatever treats for children and make them nutritional. Yeah, no, and it's true. There has been some uh, some transformation in that because over the years, and I've joked about it, that a lot of the things that I grew up on, like Pop-Tarts, right, they make organic now. So it's like it's not like there hasn't been an evolution of the taste to say, hey, let's make it a little bit cleaner. Now, am I arguing that Pop-Tarts, even or for organic, is the ultimate breakfast food? No, I'm not. But I will acknowledge that if you are, just like when uh, when we talked, uh, Super Don, Jerry Doyle, my good buddy, he, you know, he, he passed away at the age of 60, but he had, you know, some some things in his life. But, you know, he was still smoking. But I got him to switch over to a tobacco that was just tobacco and not a thousand different additives. And it wasn't ideal. He knew that it wasn't like quitting totally, but it certainly reduced some of the burden. And so I get that concept of transitioning folks back to real food. For some of us, it takes a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, it it's uh, one of those behaviors that once modified, you it, it really does just become a behavior. You realize that you just were in a, in a certain type of behavior, and once you break that habit, 
uh, you start wondering, well, why was I even doing that? Because it doesn't taste good. A perfect example was when right. I met my wife 17 mm-hmm. years ago, 18 years ago. She was, um, that all she did was drink Diet Coke. That was her big thing. And it took probably about six months to transition her off. And she hasn't had a Diet Coke in 16 years. And she drinks yeah. club soda just like you know, I do. But if she, just the memory of it, she's like, I don't know what I saw in that. That stuff, I, you can't, you know, you can't. It's that a, was my point really of saying that was my point of saying warped taste buds, right? To, to to think that those synthetics tasted good, and it was much like my awakening just from tap water, right? Because we drink tap water, and it was the best thing, cool, cold tap water, right from the tap or whatever. You're thirsty, you drink it up, and then I learned about oh my gosh, there's chlorine, there's fluoride, there's all kinds of things in there, and I went off of it, and went onto like a spring water for, I don't know, it was only two weeks, and I went back to try to drink the tap water, and it tasted like pool water. You suddenly could sense all the things you couldn't because your buds had been neutralized because that's the only flavor it knew. And it was similar to me when I recovered and went organic and cleaner food. To go back to the food of my history, it tasted like chemical, like a chemical set of stuff that they threw together. It's one of those um, components that are... Our brains, when we register, what the hell were we consuming? It, it, it's that disconnect that you recognize that you were doing things that you should have never been doing before. And, of course, we knew that wasn't good. But then when you realize that you now your your body's adjusted, your brain's adjusted, and now you see the taste, it's, it's almost it's like a smoker. You know what I mean? When a smoker has yeah. been smoking, they are the most intolerant people to cigarette smoke, besides myself. I've never smoked, but I'm very intolerant to it. But I've seen some people really lose their gore because they're around somebody else that smokes, and, and, the, and the person's an ex-smoker, and they get so upset, they get so uh, aggressive even sometimes because they truly have a, a, a distaste that m- makes them nauseated. Um, so it's, it's very interesting how the brain works and how we, we'll, make a, we'll compensate for one thing and we'll make excuses, and then when we finally transform over to the other side, it's almost like a violent reaction. It's almost like a... Uh, mm bad memory or a nightmare type elicits a visceral response in you. Well, thinking of the brain, as you just mentioned, the brain, there's a study here, uh, and it's being revealed, I guess, out of Massachusetts General Hospital. Stunning here. Study finds alterations in both blood-brain barrier and intestinal permeability in individuals with autism. And, you know, it's not a surprise to you or me, but that the uh, new, this is a news release coming out of Massachusetts General Hospital. Of course, there's no mention of mercury, as a primary cause of this, right? But at the same time, acknowledging that there are physiological damaging scenarios that have occurred uh, and acknowledging that, I guess it's a step, but uh, they certainly aren't going all the way, but I'm still stunned to see this. Yeah, it, I, I'm really, I'm really uh, surprised by this. Um, Robert, this actually, I'm, I, I just have something, I don't want to change the subject and we'll continue sure. back on this thought, but, I was just thinking that I get my news from the Robert Scott Bell Show, Advanced Medicine Mondays, and while I'm on the show, I get a message sent via Skype from you. Yes. <laughs> I'm thinking, man, our news, our our breaking news is like so breaking that we're breaking news even to ourselves while we're doing the news. Dude, I know. I, I this is what I sent Doctor Batar for all y'all. I mentioned it just so briefly. I hinted at it, and it's not something I'm prepared to talk about today. 
But dagnamit, I've said this for years, and I know you have too. Our understanding of what viruses are, or what the mainstream of medicine claims them to be, including virologists and vaccinologists, it is so infantile. It is so immature as to what actually it may be. And uh, this is coming out of Germany, where uh, a court case said that there's there's not even there's no evidence that they've isolated something called a measles virus. So that's for another show. We'll talk off the air about that. Maybe we'll hit that next week. If you can't contain yourself, we'll talk about it today as well. we got a question of the day coming up. We've also got more information, if we can get to it, on the HPV vaccine. They're desperate to get everybody to accept it. Uh, in addition, we'll talk more about this intestinal permeability and blood-brain barrier uh, violations in autism. Stick with us. If you miss the show, not only go to robertscottbell.com, but medicalrewind.com, specific to advanced medicine every week with Dr. Batar. You're listening to The Robert Scott Bell Show. The Robert Scott Bell Show. Willing to go where the truth takes him. Here's Robert. All right, folks, stick around because, uh, again, we're typically years ahead of uh, the mainstream medical media. Uh, and acknowledging things. And, of course, Dr. Rasha Bittar, uh, also author of the international best-selling book, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away, has been dealing with issues of autism since his own son was uh, vaccinated and injured into that spectrum. And, uh, again, short version, we've covered this for many years, and we've got thousands of hours now of talking about so many things, including your story, that motivates you, Dr. Bittar, even to this day to help help. Children, of course, but the parents as well, to protect them genuinely and recover them. So now we've got a story out of Mass General, which is affiliated with Harvard, talking about blood-brain barrier um, intrusions and intestinal permeability, permeability issues in individuals with autism. And they're not wrong about what they're observing, are they? I mean, they're seeing something that's real. Absolutely, absolutely. It's just unfortunate that they're... They're, they're looking at it from a um, from, from the. I mean, their, their observation is correct, but trying rather than understanding that these are some of among the many components that happen when you introduce a toxic substance into a developing physiology and resulting in these types of abnormalities and anomalies. Instead of recognizing that, they're more or less observing that. They're trying to say that there's an association like the fire engines and fires. Every time I see fires, I see fire engines. Therefore, I conclude that fire engines cause fires. It's that type of mentality that they're using as opposed to looking at the actual causation aspect mm-hmm. and how these are part and parcel of some of those injuries from that original causation. Right, right. And, and so in this case, of course, we've got gastrointestinal problems in people with the ASD, and so that must be the cause. Never asking the question as to, well, what caused that? Right? What preceded that? It's only, hey, look what we identified. Pat us on the back. We're figuring this thing out. But, of course, no mention of mercury, of vaccinations, and all the things that it contains causing these problems in the gastrointestinal system, much less the brain or blood-brain barrier, as it's called. Right, exactly. Exactly. And the blood-brain barrier, by the way, just on a side note, you know, this is an electrical, chemical uh, type of a barrier. It's not a physical barrier. And then we start looking at how, like the gut itself and the, the observations that whatever observations that they made at the study of Mass General. It was Mass General, you said, right? Yep. Yeah. So these observations that they make, they, they tend to forget that the 
second brain in the body is actually in the mesenteric plexus, in the gut. And that's why a lot of the neurotransmitters uh, like uh, serotonin and, and um, secretin and you know, many of these other neurotransmitters that are found abundantly in the brain are actually found in almost the same abundance in the mesenteric plexus. And so that's why they refer it to uh, the, the mesenteric plexus of the gut as a second brain. And so, of course, if it's causing a problem in the brain, then the gut would be the next place in, in the most second most prominent area of the body that would be injured if something's injuring the brain. And so to me and to you, there's no surprise. It's, it's, it's almost like it could be a moment of duh. I'm not sure why Super Don didn't make it into a moment of duh type of thing. Yeah, Super um, Don. <laughs> So, but you know, the, oh, the point fine. is, it's, it's good that they're yes. acknowledging it. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least they're not trying to say that there's no association, or that, or that even worse, that that type of issue doesn't even exist. Which many places do. They try to say that they'll have nothing to do with the injury. Uh, there is no sure. injury. This is a normal response, etc. So, in that sense, it's, it's a good thing that they've brought it up and they've at least acknowledged that the problem is there. And now they have to understand where the problem is, as opposed to um, misunderstanding the. the, the the role of the problem, if you will. Sure. Well, and then next they go to the microorganisms in the gut, the microbiome, and then they're going to say, well, it's a bacteria. You know, you know the same pattern. Right. Blame the bacteria as opposed to the terrain which precedes the bacteria or facilitates the growth of certain bacteria, not others. Again, nature right. abhors a vacuum. You got a balanced, healthy yeah. environment. You got balanced, healthy microorganisms living happily together. You upset that with mercury, for instance, and all bets are off as, what, as to what grows there. In addition to the direct damage of mercury, right? That's exactly right. So we've solved the That's problem, exactly and right. uh, Mass General and Harvard are still waiting to figure it out. I'm sure they're going to be waiting for some time, Robert. I think that if people had the integrity, like. Like the integrity is lacking in media, so is that same uh, integrity lacking in medicine, and probably in most professions, they would probably be right on top of it a, a lot sooner than a lot later. But of course, the fact that if they don't say there's a bacteria that's causing the problem, then it would be a virus, then it'd be a fungus, or it'd be a this thing or that thing. We've talked about the bacterial hunters, the viral hunters, so they'll always yeah. blame it on something else. They're never going to look at the actual problem. Right, and and of course, it's uh, stemming from. Well, like I talked about last hour with the pharmaceutical industrial complex, but they're operating in the vacuum. No, not the vacuum, the monopoly. They were granted by government, which, by the way, they purchased, and they own and control. And that's got to be rolled back. Integrity, medical and otherwise, right here on Advanced Medicine. More after this. In all my years of radio, I've never seen anything like this. The Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert Scott the Bell Robert Show. Scott Bell Show. All right, cranking it up, rocking the health world all over planet Earth with Dr. Rashid Batar. We've got uh, well more subjects to, to cover here. We'll see if we can squeeze them all in. We we did have a question of the day, but it was so in depth, so detailed, and I just want to comment on this because it was from. Uh, Mary, and she has a lot of questions. It wasn't one of those divorce situations where the one parent is, for custody purposes, attacking the other because they don't want to vaccinate. Apparently, that's not the issue here. But there is a husband-wife discrepancy in terms of the way they want to take care of their kid with uh, with serious issues. Like, uh, she, you know, she recognizes that uh, with autism, feeding the kid a cleaner diet, staying away from additives and things are are very helpful. 
And her son's psychiatrist is calling her delusional for acknowledging that food matters, much less that some doctors know how to reverse autism. And so I say that culturally, Dr. Batar. There's no real easy answer because she has a lot of questions here. But culturally, when we say in the West we live in an insane asylum and the inmates are running it, we're talking about the licensed medical doctors that don't know that diet is important, that that injecting toxins in the, in the guise of vaccines is not helpful. It's more hurtful, right? And I have to say those people are the ones that have to be closer to insanity than the moms who are waking up and saying, you know what, I want to I care for my kids differently. I completely agree. And I think that this is another tool that is abused and um, utilized against parents by the, the position that I'm the doctor or I'm the authoritarian, I'm the child protective services, I'm the nutritionist, I'm the whatever, and I know better what's, what's best for your child than you do, and this is what the standard of care is, this is what the data that's published says, and vaccines are good for you, and if you do anything against it, we're going to uh, accuse you of not taking care of your child and then threaten you to take your child away. And so this is, a, this is the status quo. I mean, this is their modus operandi. This is how they operate, through intimidation, through um, minimizing what your own belief systems are, mm-hmm. and under the pretense of having superior knowledge and more abilities and more awareness and being privy to all the research, blah, 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 you know, is hiding behind the, the, the white coat and, and thinking that they're better than everybody. That's, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, and then you've got the establishment, and this includes the courts, right, that typically side with those that have a medical degree or a license or both. And, you know, there's a story here out of Medical News Today about ADHD, right? The younger children, they're acknowledging, may be overdiagnosed, and they're giving them drugs that have never been tested on them for short-term, much less long-term safety or efficacy. And, and yet that's the standard, right? Drug the kids and the school still to this day will get some sort of kickback on the local level through the health departments or however this is run for more children being put on these medications. Yeah, and that type of stuff has to be uh, made, the public needs to be made aware of it, and the court systems need to be made aware, aware of it, because I don't think all the court systems are really aware of that. And I think as a general rule, the courts aren't corrupt. They just don't know any better. So, you know, you have somebody that's got um, a degree and somebody else that's a parent that's concerned, they're, the court's responsibility, they're going to be thinking that, well, if we go with the parent and the parent ends up hurting the child versus if we go with the medical professional who at least, you know, they're licensed and this is what it's supposed to be, we're not going to be held accountable for that. Maybe that's what they're thinking. I think the courts need to be made more aware of it. I think that it comes down to how well the case is argued and, and how much as a as a parent or as an individual that has a child that's in the situation how reactive you are versus how proactive you are, whether you're going to sit back and think of yourself as a victim versus going out and being proactive and, and showing the, the, the data. I mean, look at, like, Nico LaHood, mm-hmm. the, the gentleman, the prosecutor from San Antonio that we, you know, we've, we're both friends with now. Yes. If you have somebody like that, most people, once, they're, once they see the evidence in front of themselves, um, especially when they've got their own child, they'll they make that conversion, and that's how an attorney has to be there in front of a judge, saying, hey, judge, do you have a child, or do you you have children, do you have grandchildren? Here, let me then tell you the story, and let me show you this. What would you do? And once the person 
that's making the decision, the judge or the jury, they're put in the same situation. They start looking at the evidence. That's really what the key is. If you have an attorney that just shows up there and doesn't really care whether, you know, they don't, they're not arguing your point based on principle, they don't give a crap, then yeah. you're not going to end up getting anything. It's well, down to everything else. Like my dad used to say, it has nothing to do with the, the, whether you're guilty or you're not guilty. It comes down to how good your attorney is. Yeah, and then, of course, you litigate so many issues. There are seven points that Mary throws out there. I don't know that one attorney addresses all of those. It's like it's almost a no-win scenario unless you have unlimited funds or you have an attorney that has unlimited funds of his own or her own and has studied this issue and wants to take it on as a, as a, as a case precedent in a sense. So, you know, well, and go ahead. That, that, that was, that's a really, really good point, Robert, that you made. And, and I would like to add that if this lady wants some advice from us, all those different things that she said and the way she outlined them, you know, she can't take on all those fronts. She mm-hmm. needs to take one thing on and take it on head on, whichever one she decides, because they are, they're hitting all these different areas. And if, if they have even a little bit to stand on in any of those, then she's going to open up a can of worms for herself. She needs to pick one of those things that she wants to fight on and go forward. But otherwise, yeah. you know, it's like verbal vomiting and nobody's going to listen to it. Yeah, it's too much. It's overwhelming. And, and I just remember my buddy Clark Baker uh, who helped uh, many people who were accused of crimes based on this so-called status of being HIV positive, and, and particularly in the military. And they were, they were winning every case, pushing back by showing the scientific evidence that there was no such thing as a reliable HIV test. In fact, the HIV tests don't detect HIV. It was so shocking that you know the, the mainstream media didn't want to cover it. But time after time after time, when the science was presented, it was irrefutable in that context. But again, it's too shocking for those who have been programmed to believe things because they've said it. The mainstream media has reported it. The so-called authoritarian doctors in government have said it, so it must be real. And anybody who questions it is the insane one. The irony is that the sane people are questioning everything. Like George Carlin said, comedian George Carlin said, I have uh, two. Well, one main rule I live by: if the government says it, I don't believe it, unless I can independently verify it. So, uh, good stuff here. Good perspectives. Uh, listen, we got a phone call coming in from New York. I don't know if it's New York City or not, but James is calling in. James, you're on the Robert Scott Bell Show, Advanced Medicine with Doctor Rasha Batar. Welcome, James. Uh, you have a question about Lyme disease. Hey, Robert and Doctor Batar. Yes, um, I have a friend uh, who's got an over bearing Lyme disease situation, barely any energy, and uh, was wondering your thoughts and experience, if you don't mind sharing. All right, James, I appreciate the call on that. Now, this is more of a general issue with Lyme. We've talked about it to some degree. They blame a Borrelia spirochete, which is a, a, a bear in terms of addressing it with antibiotics. They end up killing the patient. They put them on so many for so many years. I've talked about utilizing silver, as have you, but what have you seen in your practice, if you if you may be so kind to share with us all, Dr. Batar, have patients come in with Lyme to you? Well, they do all the time, and I make sure people understand that we don't treat Lyme's, and yet we have a very, very high success rate of people that had Lyme's, very simply because it's the third of the seven toxicities. It's actually a very relatively easy thing to deal with. The reason people don't get better that are being treated with Lyme is because they're being bombarded with antibiotics, which then, of course, kills the gut flora and everything in dogs, and they're not addressing the first toxicity, heavy metals, and the second toxicity, persistent organic pollutants, both of which lead to immunosuppression, which leads to the opportunistic third toxicity to rear up its head, which is limes. And in this particular case, when they treat the limes with high-dose antibiotics, they kill off all the endogenous beneficial flora and just renders the person more susceptible. So, yes, we don't treat limes per se. We treat uh, the individual for their toxicities, and if 
the third third person has the third toxicity, the opportunistic toxicity. We always have to deal with the first and second one first because those are the two underlying components. Um, as a general statement with Lyme's, they called Lyme's the great masquerader. And I think, Robert, what was it? Last year or two years ago, I'm not sure exactly when it was, the CDC talked about that there's, um, I, I may be getting this off by a factor of 10, but <laughs> if I remember right, it was like that they said 10 million people are diagnosed with Lyme, or 10 million people have Lyme that's undiagnosed, and they anticipate or they project that there's actually, for everyone that's diagnosed, everyone that thinks that has Lyme, there's probably 10 mm-hmm. that have it and, and don't show symptoms, and pretty much any type of medical symptoms you have could be associated with Lyme. So if you look at the prevalence of Lyme's out there, um, the question is why does it affect one person and doesn't affect the other person? So I've had at least four tick bites on myself in probably the last year, year and a half, and uh, probably the last year and a half. So why don't I have a problem with Lyme's and somebody else looked at a tick, you know, assume yeah. that's what it is. Or what else. Why is it? Why do some people, why are they more susceptible than others? Sure. Well, and, and of course, that begs the question of you know a, a fundamental paradigm shift that needs to take place in medicine, and I would even say, and more holistically, or what they've called alternative medicine, because many of them target so heavily antimicrobials, even less toxic ones, and don't address the heavy metals and the persistent organic pollutants. Right, first and second toxicity, and so when we look at the germ theory, and and we've all been duped by it at some time in our lives. And we don't abandon it, even as we go more holistic, we're still in that poisoning mode. We've got to poison the patient in order to get them well because there's something bad in there we got to kill, as opposed to restoring integrity to the entire system and environment along the while where you, you we're not ignoring these so-called opportunistics or immunosuppression, but we're also not targeting like chemotherapeutists, if you will, to poison the body in order to recover it. Exactly, exactly. And, and in case somebody misunderstood what we said, we're not saying that heavy metals and persistent organic pollutants cause Lyme. What we're saying is that when you suppress the immune system from the heavy metals and the persistent organic pollutants, you render your system more susceptible, and Lyme happens to be one of those things that they're susceptible to. Lyme falls underneath the same category as all the other opportunistic, the bacteria, viruses, spirochetes, mm-hmm. mycoplasma. Lyme is a spirochete. It falls into underneath that category. So, the question should come up is why, you know, why does one person get it and another person not? It's because one person's immune system is healthier than the other ones, or one person is more toxic than the other person and then more um, susceptible or rendered susceptible to the issue of lines. The best way of thinking about this is if you have milk and you've got it in the refrigerator versus milk that's sitting out at room temperature, which milk is going to go bad faster? Well, the one that's sitting at room temperature. Why? Because it's more susceptible because it's not being refrigerated, so it's more prone to uh, overgrowth of whatever's in there, bacteria, whatever. So that's how we should be looking at this, our susceptibility. And when we deal with doing something proactively to benefit ourselves, we need to look at how can we make ourselves less susceptible. Yes, less vulnerable. Ultimately, it is an environmental question. And as you said, you could be right next to the fridge or you could be in the fridge. (laughs) And it makes a difference. The environment's totally different, even though it's proximal to you. All right, folks. Hey, thanks, James, New York, for uh, calling up, asking that question for your friend. Hopefully that's helpful. You can check out more about Dr. Batar by going to drbuttar.com, linked up in the show notes. The revolution will be broadcast. 
The Robert Scott Bell Show. All right, for all y'all that took part in the advanced medicine webinar by the Drops of Life, you crashed the servers. There were so many that wanted to take part in that last Wednesday with Dr. Batar. Uh, Good news is the video that was uh, promised to be up is up now. So if you've already uh, participated, that means you're already a member of the organization we talked about, International Association for a Disease-Free World, that takes you out of the public domain, public health, gone, and into the private sector. And you can learn about things you can't. we can't say even on this radio show. So uh, if you're not already a part of this, don't worry. You still can be. The Robert Scott Bell Show gets you in for $1, right? What is, what is the annual rate supposed to be? Dr. Batar, it's, it's like ninety nine dollars a year every year. Yeah, but for but for people that have been invited by yourself, myself. Yeah, you listen uh, to Advanced Medicine each week. You get in for a dollar, and that's all you ever pay. That's it. For lifelong, yep, lifelong, lifelong membership, exactly. So, and your code and uh, Super Don sending it out through Facebook and Twitter as well, and we'll get that into the notes. Uh, it's one three five eight. It's the it's four numbers. It's basically thirteen fifty eight. Your code. You're in. You have to be invited. You just can't just join. So that's how it takes it into the private place where you can learn about things that certain organizations and entities on planet Earth don't want you to know. So anything else I missed on that? Because it was like if so many people wanted to see it, it just crashed the servers. That's exactly right, Robert. And we were pretty pretty shocked, but uh, there's nothing else. I think you covered it all. Okay. All right. So with that, I, I just want to uh, wrap up this segment talking about the bogus uh, HPV vaccine, Gardasil and Cervix. I mean, it, does anybody not know how ridiculously dangerous that vaccine is? And now we've got news reports saying, oh, my gosh, the risk of dying from cervical cancer may be much higher than experts previously believed. Now, that may or may not be true. I'm not sure. I haven't looked into their claims specific to that. But that has nothing to do with the failure or the success of the vaccines that they say are for HPV, which are bogus. But they're utilizing a statement like that to say, oh, my gosh, you better go out and get the HPV shot, which, by the way, has never been proven to work. By the way, the human papillomavirus has not been proven to even cause cervical cancer. But they raced and raced and raced 20, 30 years into the future to make claims that they have no validation and justification to make to profit off of you and your suffering and your fear. And too many teenage girls especially have been harmed even into, well, even killed, but many have been rendered sterile, unable to have children after getting this shot. So don't take this lightly just because they're trying to frighten you. (sighs) Man, Dr. Batar, sometimes I wonder. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, I agree with everything you said except for one thing. Yeah. That you said to design to profit off you. And I think it's not designed to profit off us. I think it's more to design to what you said, the last thing rendered them sterile. Mm. I think this is a more suspect agenda, a more uh, dark agenda. There's This isn't to do with money and power. I think this is to do with something that's far more sinister. And... Um, so the, the agenda that they're pushing has a very specific motivation, mm-hmm. which 
you know, it, it, it's probably not something, I don't even know, maybe it's, maybe I should be cursing on here, which would be more acceptable than what I'm talking about, the subject matter. Sure, but, sure. You know, the, the truth is the truth. So if it was well, money and power, they've already got all the money, they've got all the power, mm. so then why, what, why are they still losing ground? Well, they're losing ground because people are becoming aware, and they're becoming aware because this is a dark, dark subject that more people have become aware of, that's more light shining on the issue, and as we know, when the light shines on the rats, they go scurrying, and that's what they're afraid of. They don't want the and, light and I believe the there is a racial agenda here. And if you look in this article, it says black women in the U.S. are dying from the disease at a rate 77 percent higher than white women. Uh, so, you know, then it, it, it drums up fear in, in one particular community in America to get the shot, to sterilize them ultimately, because that's what's happening. Whether it's their intent or not is semi irrelevant. I say semi. The result is the same. And so we look also to uh, Margaret Sanger and, the, and, and, and Planned Parenthood. The whole intent to begin with about the abortion agenda was to reduce the population of black folks. That is a fact. And that's a, an, un, an unholy alliance on the political left demanding that everybody have access to this stuff. All right, Dr. Yeah, Batar, we, totally did, we, we didn't get controversial at all today. No, not, no controversy at all. It's Except for the stuff. discussion of Skittles. Well, yeah, and I, I don't think, I think that pretty much uh, that's even not a controversial thing. I think we all know that Skittles taste good. Oh, no, I dispute that. But, hey, that's all right. What are friends for? Folks, you know it. I'm just here to remind you, as is Dr. Rashid Bittar, the power to heal is definitely yours. The Robert Scott the Bell Robert Show. Robert Scott Bell Show. 